faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. People believe tall buildings at a single bound. The instant of Krypton is now the man of steel. Superman! Welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This is episode 63, and this time around, I'm going somewhere that I haven't gone before. Smallville. Not the town, the TV series. It's a topic that I really, I haven't avoided, but I more left to came and stole of the Superman vidcast because that was what he did best, and he really did do a great job with that. But the truth is... I haven't seen Cayman do a video in a long, long time, and I hope my obvious guilt trip will bring him out of his exile. Yes, I am talking directly to you now, Cayman. Uh, But in the meantime, I'm finally going to talk about Smallville, and specifically Smallville Season 11. For the two of you who have never heard of the Smallville TV series, well, this may not be the episode for you. And it's not that I don't want you to listen. I do, but I want you to enjoy the show. But for the rest of you... We all know that Smallville was a phenomenon, and redefined the mythology for a new generation, for good or for bad, that remains to be discussed. It chronicled a pre-Superman Clark Kent from his teenage days to donning the costume with its strict edict of no flights, no tights. It was a concept that I balked at when I first heard of it. Clark Kent living in Smallville, dealing with his superpowers, but not being Superboy. I remember it being described somewhere as Dawson's Creek meets Superman, that wasn't really exciting in theory. Sorry. But, by the time the show made its debut in October of 2001, I had been converted thanks to a really, really good ad campaign. Every Tuesday just became a ritual. My friend Sean and I would gather at my apartment, sit through the last few minutes of Gilmore Girls, and at 8pm Central Time, game on. I didn't realize what a phenomenon it was at at that point. Um, I was keeping my fingers crossed for the show to complete its five-year plan, or even a second season at that point, because, you know, genre shows weren't known to continue very long. Um, But the show ran for ten years. Ten years. That is incredible. I'm not going to pretend that I was on board for the entire decade. Um, Maybe you can call me a Fairweather fan, I don't know. I kind of got burned out around season six. And then I came back full force for the last three seasons. But it ended up being a great, great ride, ending with one of my favorite television moments ever, Clark Kent doing that shirt rip looking epic as the Man of Steel. And that is where we pick up this week with Smallville Season 11, which is a digital comic continuing the story um, with everything supposedly being canon. It appeared on April 13th, 2011, oddly, 11 months after the finale, And the digital first comic drops a new chapter every Friday, kind of keeping the show's time slot. Those chapters are then collected monthly in print form. The basic equation is that three chapters equals a print issue, and 12 chapters equals a television episode. So if a standard television season is 22 episodes, Smallville Season 11 has a long way to go still. What we are covering this time is the first six chapters forming the first story, Guardian. And then next week we'll pick up with the latter half of Guardian with chapters uh, 7 through 12. But first, an email from Mr. Sean Ingle, 
host of the ever-excellent Just One of the Guys podcast, chronicling Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. Sean's email is entitled, General Superman Thoughts. Sean writes, Hey David, I just thought I'd write in and tell you that I've recently been enjoying the show since you brought it back. Thank you, Sean. Having, an unf- having the unfixed format does wonders for it and allows you to cover a wide variety of topics that interest or engage you at the time. I specifically liked episode 60 where you, at the last minute you decided to break format and cover the comic rather than the direct-to-DVD movie covering the comic. Ever since I started listening to comic book podcasts, it seemed like fans of Superman have had to defend their favorite character from everyone else in fandom. I'm certain it's part of the internet culture that in order to promote something you like, you must tear something else down. And this readily applies to what people will do with Superman. It does, however, lead to some wonderfully reasoned defenses of the character done by both you and Michael Bailey, the Reverend Michael Bailey, if you will, as well as similar defenses of the supporting characters, your defense of Lois Lane. But episode 60 in the Action Comics book that you talked about in the show plainly show that Superman and what he stands for isn't antiquated or naive. Amen. Superman is the embodiment of all that mankind can achieve if they decide to do what is right. And the fact that he has evolved over 75 years of publication and will soon have 1,000 comics published in the title he originated in means that even if some people with a grudge don't like him, he still has enough fan base and relevance to keep on going. There's a brand new Superman movie coming out this year. Can you say that with Spawn? So what I guess I'm trying to say is, I so loved your impassioned defense of the Man of Steel, but in my book, he never needed it. Superman was, is, and will always be the hero that all others will be measured by, and nothing some nitwick with a blog or son of a movie director who has access to a camera and a few actor friends can do to diminish that. Enough said. Oh wait, that's the other guy. Anyhow, keep on putting out the great shows, and I'll keep listening. Sean. Thank you so much, Sean. And uh, yeah, the format does allow for a lot of freedom to say a lot of things, Sean. Um, Sometimes it leads to issues when I want to cover a lot of things and I want to cover them now, even if that means all at once. Now, so far, I've staved off my my need to cover three things simultaneously, but we'll have to wait to see if my resolve holds. And while the Internet culture has made the need to defend the character more abundant, it's been around for a long, long time, especially, you know, more abundant things to those that only bother to check Wikipedia and not read the material itself. But uh, to me, I've been defending him off, you know, really to greater or lesser degrees since junior high. But I mean, the, the email was well said. It's true. Superman doesn't need to be defended, but I feel the need to defend him. And that's how we get obsessive podcasting. I'm not going to pretend that this show is not to some greater or lesser extent, a vanity project. It's therapy. The character isn't going away. I mean, we have a new movie coming up in about three months, and from all accounts of early screenings, it is mind-blowing. So this this show, it's for me and you, for our entertainment, our appreciation, our bonding. The character doesn't necessarily need it. He's got a media team for that. But when you're a fan, you want to share. So, thank you again, Sean. I appreciate your kind words, and I plan on doing the show for quite a while more, as long as life and health allows. And folks, do remember to go to www.justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com to hear Sean defend two great characters in his own right, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner being, well, my Green Lantern. And you can also hear him over on Two True Freaks on several of their shows. But I appreciate your email, Sean. Uh, if you want to email, the email address is mail at supermanforever.com. I'd love to hear from you. 
And we will be jumping right into our uh, Smallville Season 11 coverage right after this promo for the 20-minute long box. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. Randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. How'd you get in here, Clark? Uh. So that was my interpretation of almost every Smallville episode ever. Uh, but we are back to dive into Smallville Season 11, Guardian, the first half. All chapters were written by Brian Q. Miller, who really worked through the ranks on Smallville, starting out as an unpaid intern all the way up to executive story editor, and by the time the show ended. So he also wrote the Stephanie Brown Batgirl, to much acclaim. Uh, the art in chapters 1 through 3 were by Pere Perez, colored by Randy Major. Lettering was by Saida Temafonte. Kwanzaa Johnson is the editor and Sarah Litt is assistant editors. Chapters 1 through 3 share a cover by Cat Staggs of Tom Welling as Superman flying toward the reader, shattering the familiar Smallville logo. It's really an exquisite image. Um, it gives us the familiar face of Tom Welling, but in the new souped-up hero suit. It immediately says that we're going full steam ahead into new territory with this kind of uh, version of the character. There's an alternate version by Gary Frank that has Clark flying above Metropolis, but that was on the print edition and it looks just really awkward. It bums me out that they use the Gary Frank cover for that print edition, because this cover really is awesome. Now since the story is broken up into 12 parts, I'll actually be using the tried and true synopsis notes format and going chapter by chapter. So, chapter 1. A beautiful morning is breaking over Metropolis as people move about in this new age of heroes. At Watchtower, Chloe Sullivan Queen awakens to see her leather-clad archer returning from patrol, looking out over the big apricot. She asks him to get some rest, and he agrees, but first, he wants to see him. Across town, Lois continues to slumber. Clark Kent's side of the bed is empty as she talks and mumbles in her sleep. And high above Metropolis, in the high-rise headquarters of the former Luthor Corp, now Lex Corp, Lex Luthor himself looks out on the city. Like Oliver, Lex also wants to catch sight of the Man of Steel and gets a good look at a blue and red streak flying across Metropolis' sky. High above Metropolis in orbit, the crew of the Russian space platform, I'm going to say this wrong, Korolyov, is proceeding with their day as normal. And the radar shows empty space, and then space suddenly isn't empty anymore, as a huge rift of energy brightens the sky, but as beautiful as it is, it becomes as dangerous very, very quickly. 
Meteors come flying through this rift in space and start tearing into space station, uh, making holes, sending one cosmonaut drifting into space as he is caught on a spacewalk. And suddenly, that cosmonaut is back in the space station, much to everyone's surprise. The holes become repaired at super speed, and the crew is elated to see... The Man of Steel, the Big Blue Boy Scout, that strange visitor from another planet, Superman. The cosmonauts can't contain their excitement at the appearance of Superman, and one even asks for his autograph. Superman tells the cosmonaut that he is the hero. As Superman, he is simply doing his job. And with that, Superman flies back to Earth, bringing this first chapter to a riveting close. Let me start my notes by saying I was a bit hesitant to jump into this comic. Now sure, the idea of having some Smallville back on my Fridays was hugely intriguing, since there was a huge gaping hole in my TV watching routine, and a hole that wasn't filled until Arrow came along. I wasn't sure what to expect, but hey, the chapters are 99 cents a pop. That's as low risk as they come. And I'm pleased to say that I was enthralled. I love the opening scenes, I love that we really are getting a Superman tale in another continuity. The opening with its fairly obvious symbolism of a new age in this world still works. While the characters are immediately recognizable, but the art, I'm glad about this, the art isn't slavish to the actor's likenesses, which allows this comic to kind of stand on its own a bit, as its own independent entity. And I'm really glad that we start six months later as opposed to the final scene of the show, which sped ahead almost seven years. That means the Lex Luthor presidency, Jimmy Olsen, and Perry White are still out there waiting to be rediscovered. Bear in mind, with this Good Morning Metropolis sequence, we still haven't seen Clark as Superman. We're saving the money shot for a bit later, and it totally pays off. Another thing that pays off is the digital presentation is in widescreen, making it feel just a bit more like experiencing the story on a television screen. This is best expressed in the shots of the Russian space station, which brings us to a larger scale than what we would have seen on the show, at least on an average episode. This gets amped up to 11 when the energy ribbon appears, showing us some spectacular colors and, well I hate to admit this, but the scene made me think of the movie Armageddon. No, no, no! Stop that smooth melodic song from the pen of Oscar winner Jennifer Warren. Stop it right now. Uh, sorry, folks. Sometimes that happens when I mention that movie and little Benny Affleck. So let's get back on this. The debut of the Smallville Universe Superman. Let's be honest. What we got from Smallville were a few faraway shots, or obstructed shots, in Clark in the costume, which was mostly CGI, and that's fine for what it, it made sense for what we were doing. But there's no holding back as we get the full page of the debut. And gone is the Superman Returns version of the costume, and now we have a two-tone blue suit, which, well, it looks very Superman Earth-1. It looks like the Shane Davis version of the costume from those graphic novels. Except that the belt has a really solid splash of color. It looks good, and it looks right, even without the trunks, but then again, DC hates trunks, right? Not only that, but we don't get the whiny emo Clark Kent we got from the show, we get a confident, full-on Superman, which I dig, I dig that a lot, and Miller nails it when Clark humbly tells the cosmonaut that he's just doing his job as Superman. Any hesitation on this comic was gone for me, and I was on board. 
Uh, we were getting some oddly old-school Superman, and within the context of the show that progressed him into the 21st century. Bit of a paradox there, kids. So I was anxiously awaiting the next week's chapter, which we will jump into now. We open on the Metropolis apartment of Clark Kent and Lois Lane later that morning as the couple prepares to meet their day. Clark is talking about how the energy ribbon, or aurora, whatever you want to call it, just appeared, and wonders if they're going to send the presents from their failed wedding back. You remember that from the finale, right? Gold kryptonite, wedding ring, all that. Meanwhile, at LexCorp, Luthor takes a meeting with Lois's father, General Sam Lane, to basically inform the military that he is taking steps to deal with threats like Apocalypse and Superman. Lex plans on building Guardian platforms to deal with the extraterrestrial threats with or without the military's involvement. General Lane simply says that if and when there is a need to deal with Superman, he's going to step forward. Later on the streets of downtown Metropolis, a bespectacled Clark Kent runs into Lex again for the first time. Having had his memory wiped by a toxin delivered by Tess Mercer just as he ran her through with a dagger, Luthor doesn't remember any of his history with Clark and Smallville, including Clark's secret which really wasn't that secret by the end of the show. Lex has a hard time seeing how and why they were friends, and basically gives a solid PR-heavy spiel about he is how he is trying to make the world a better place, and without a cape and tights. Clark hears an emergency as they talk and whisks off before Lex notices, and instead of Clark standing there when Lex turns around, he is shocked when he sees Tess Mercer. And that ends the attention-grabbing second chapter of Guardian. If the first installment grabbed me with its whimsical Superman debut, this one brought me into the plot. Especially that last page, and I immediately realized that the book wasn't going to lack depth of plot lines, and it won't. By the end of Guardian, we will have a lot of things on the table. We once again open with what I originally thought was the next morning, but realized that Superman saves space stations before, before breakfast all the time. That's how he rolls, kids. I love that there's an acknowledgement that Superman was in the Superman Returns style costume in at least the episode of the TV series, and now that's been updated. And Lois wears a t-shirt with the Superman Returns style logo. There's a joke about how it's impossible to draw the same draw the symbol the same way twice, and please note, Lois is working with a Wayne Tech laptop, which does act as a bit of a harbinger for the larger version of the Smallville universe that is coming in subsequent storylines. The interplay between Lois and Clark is very natural, and I wondered how that would translate, because, you know, really, the strength of that relationship between the characters, the Clois, as it's known on the nets, um, the real strength of that was the chemistry between Tom Welling and Erica Durant, which I will never ever deny, and I'd like to have some chemistry with Erica Durant myself, but it doesn't suffer from going to print form, um, rather than actors spouting the lines. I mean, we haven't yet return to the farm now that I realize that. In fact, the farm's not even referenced, is it? But when we left the show, it was up for sale. I don't remember if it had actually been purchased because Martha's speech about not selling the, the farm led me to believe that Clark may well end up keeping it. And jumping ahead a bit to the scene between General Lane and Lex, it isn't a hard leap to understand Lex's mistrust of Superman. I'll buy into that. As Brian Q. Miller mentioned in interviews, Basically, without his memory, he woke up to Apocalypse in the Sky, a guy who flies around in a cape, pushing it out, of, pushing planets out of the way. Um, you know, his sister, dead on the floor from a stab wound. Talk about a culture shock. I've, I've had warnings like that, but that had nothing to do with my memory being wiped. 
Uh, to fill in a blank, Lex Luthor died and was resurrected with a combination of cloning and, well, dark side. He went to Luthor Corp to find his long-lost sister Tess Mercer within... We're not sure exactly how far back his memory goes, but it conveniently removes all of his experiences within the run of the Smallville TV series. However, I'll extend that thought process with this. When Lex and Clark meet, he is correct in the fact that the two of them really wouldn't have been friends. The only reason they had any connection at all was because Clark saved him after Lex hit him with the car. Remove that event and they have no ground to share. Lex is a spoiled rich boy who's actually a few years older. He was already out of high school. And Clark is a down-to-earth farm boy. That's about it. And as convenient as it was that Lex's memories were erased, including knowing Clark's secret, it really does get played off solidly. And then we get the scene that I completely did not expect. Tess Mercer, Lex's slain sister, standing before him, which basically solidified my interest in this series. And that brings us to chapter 3, and the last chapter to be included in the print version, which, before I jump to the third chapter, I want to point out that while the digital version of the comic runs 19 pages or so, or so, sorry, there are halved versions of the print form, which lends itself to the widescreen viewing of the books. They basically cut the page in half and split them up. However, I've never felt like the 99 cents I spent on an, on an individual chapter of this book went wasted, because generally speaking, the chapters satisfy. The only real awkward moments come in what is intended to be a full-page splash or a, a double-page splash, because the half version of the page uh, shows up, and then you push to the next one, it's the full version of the page. So you get duplicate images. Not the worst thing, and not a complaint, because normally the image is worth it, like the debut of Clark in costume or the bombshell reveal of Tess Mercer. Which springboards us back into the third chapter, which opens with Green Arrow breaking up a heist at the port of Metropolis. The would-be thieves are getting an upper hand of Ollie when somebody makes a crack about his wife. Oh, never make a crack about Green Arrow's wife, guys. Ollie uses a trick arrow that sends smaller, electrified arrows uh, raining down on the crooks. But, not to be outdone, the, one of the crooks uses the rule of escalation and cracks out a small rocket launcher and fires at Ollie, who is helpless to avoid the speeding projectile. Not good. That's what our boy in blue comes into the picture and rescues Ollie, blocking it, uh, blocking him from the missile and taking it to the chest where it explodes harmlessly. One change of clothes later, Clark and Oliver look at their handiwork all tied up for the police and the two walk the streets of Metropolis with Oliver lamenting that he won't have threats like this in Star City. Clark assures his friend that wherever he goes, trouble is sure to follow. And weren't Chloe and Oliver supposed to have left for Star City already? Yeah, but Chloe being... Well, Chloe can't quite leave until she figures out just what the Aurora was that hit the Russian space station. And at Watchtower, she continues to process the data as her cousin Lois pays a visit to the secret citadel of Justice. And there is some banter about exactly when Lois and Clark will finish out the wedding that got ruined in the Smallville finale, but that gets cut abruptly short, much like the wedding itself, ironically, when the Watchtower computer shows Chloe the video feed from the Russian satellite. Both women are shocked to see that the Aurora brought something with it, a ship. Or to put it more correctly, it seems to have brought someone, I guess, and thus ends the third chapter and first print issue. And what a chapter it was, giving us the Smallville Green Arrow in action, which, well, with the awesomeness of, of Stephen Amell and Arrow, I 
I don't want to sound critical, because Justin Hartley was cool. He was just a bit shiny, and that costume was way over the top. Not that I don't have issues with Amel's version, but it loses the sunglasses. Granted, it replaces it with green makeup, but that version of Oliver is a bit more driven. I mean, he's rowdy, he's dirty, he's a force of nature. But I actually believe, now hear me out when I say this, I actually believe that Arrow is a better constructed show than Smallville was. However, the only reason is because Smallville happened. Because something like Smallville hadn't been done before. So it was the show to build the template with the long-form storyline of the season, the smaller episodes, um, at least in the superhero genre. I mean, you had shows like X-Files. It had its one-and-done episodes and then the mythology episodes. Arrow really benefits from hearing fan frustration about how stringent the no-flights and no-tights rule was adhered to. And it gives us a bit of a a progressed version of a proto-hero. Hartley's Green Arrow was pretty much fully formed when he debuted. And let's be completely honest here, he was written to be a Batman cipher. Or so was Green Arrow when he debuted in comics. But And I did I mention his lime green costume looked like a car from Fast and the Furious rather than Dark Avenger of the Night? And we are seeing seamless plot threads, getting back to the book, from the show followed up on. Such as Ollie revealing his identity to the world, creating a bit of an obstruction to his crime fighting, And speaking of secret identities, I really enjoyed the scene of Clark and Ollie in street clothes shooting the breeze. There isn't really um, a constructive reason for this, just to be completely honest, save that it was just good character moments. And it added a lot of, uh, a little bit back to Clark Kent himself, and grounded us a bit. And finally for the chapter, Chloe and Watchtower. Chloe, oh Chloe, Chloe's a frustrating character for me, because I really, really do love me some Chloe, but... The producers shot themselves in the foot by including this original character who overshadowed Pete Ross, a character from the comics. In fact, with Chloe, they found what they didn't, you know, that they really just didn't need Pete at all. And so he was ushered off the show to do adult videos and deal drugs. The actor, not not the character. We have no idea what happened to Pete, and I hope they kind of address that in the comic. So we lost an actual piece of the mythology in exchange for something new. And I kind of feel guilty liking her. Allison Mack had a, a foot out the door in the last season, which is kind of the whole Star City thing, part of where the Star City thing came on, but her return for the portion of episodes she was on was kind of a big deal. However, now, we have no actors to work with, no contracts, etc. So, we don't have to lose Chloe at all, which is a good thing because I think her role as Watchtower is phenomenal. So, as a full print issue, how did these chapters do? Well, Excellent. They took what was learned about writing these characters on the TV show and then expanded that immediately. Uh, Building on the ten years of origin, Miller wastes no time in declaring that this is indeed Superman. With no concerns about budget or actors, we're free to kind of cast this large net over the world of Smallville and explore it without limits. And we're left with several intriguing questions that suck you in. I can see fans of the show being immediately sucked in the book as I was with the first print issue, if not the first chapter. And that begs the question, does that momentum remain beyond the first issue? Well, let's take a quick break. Wow, Blake. Let's take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo, and then when we come back, we'll dive into chapters 4 through 6 and find out. Be back right after this. In a world where planets die... I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? 
where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Presenting the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. And we are back to continue Smallville Season 11's first story arc, Guardian. Being as which Chapter 4 begins a new print issue, we get another cover from Cat Stags. This time it's a close-up of Lex Luthor's face as laser grid, uh, sort of the MRI grid, laser grid is laid over it, complete with the shield and infinity symbol right in the symbol. A closer look into Lex's eyes reveals that within them is Tess Mercer's face looking back at us. It's a bit unsettling, A, because Lex is staring at the reader, um, but B, because Le- Tess and Lex are staring at us. And while Lex's straight-ahead glance is fairly obvious, Tess is only revealed on closer examination. And it can be a bit startling. I can attest to that. But Staggs is really, really nailing the actor's likenesses, which is excellent because the cover can ground the book into the show, while the interior art is more free to explore the space. As we open, Lex is at a hospital getting the results of an MRI, which reveals that his brain is fully grown, yet essentially new. Not only that, but is operating at a higher percentage than normal thanks to the neurotoxin. But, as for Lex seeing his dead sister, maybe they should visit, he should visit a therapist. As her suicide may have been traumatic enough to trigger those hallucinations. As the doctor leaves, T- Lex and Tess, or his potential hallucination of Tess, whichever you want, way you want to interpret it, begin chatting. Lex actually wants to know, are you a hallucination, a ghost, just what the heck are you? And Tess really doesn't know, because... One minute, she was getting stabbed and applying the neurotoxin. The next, she was on the street with Lex, which we saw in Chapter 2. Lex's assistant, Otis... Wait, wow. Have I not mentioned Otis? Well, yeah, it's it's Otis, and that is awesome. But Otis comes across um, Lex, essentially talking to himself, exter- at least that's what it looks like, and recommends that Luthor delay the press conference plan for that day. Lex says that won't be necessary... Because there is no time to waste. If the military won't take steps to protect the world, someone has to. Elsewhere in space, Superman is scanning for traces of the Aurora's energy, but it's empty, even to his spectrum of vision. Back at Star Labs, monitoring the Man of Steel is Emil Hamilton and Chloe. Chloe is surprised to hear about Superman's extended vision powers, but Emil has been working with Clark for months, exploring and refining the Kryptonian's powers. Hamilton explains that Dr. Virgil Swan, who was played by the late Christopher Reeve on the show, established Star Labs in his will to assist the Traveler, a.k.a. Superman. 
Hamilton also adds that he would have preferred to send one of his new hazardous environment drones to space rather than bother Superman, but as the Man of Tomorrow returns, he says that it's no bother, just as he gets a text from Lois on his belt communicator that he's late for Luthor's press conference. And as Clark arrives at super speed, the press conference does not disappoint. As Lois tries to ask Lex about his time away and his dead sister, Lex shrugs those off and instead points out that the Earth is not alone. The universe is full of dangers and Lex will be putting Guardian platforms into space to monitor and protect the people of Earth from extraterrestrial threats like Superman. And the mission is going to be headed by a real American hero. Lex brings that hero to the stage, a man that Luthor says is his very own Superman, Commander Hank Henshaw. And Chapter 4 closes with a few gasps from longtime Superman fans. Oh yeah, they went there. So beyond that ending, what worked and what didn't? We're into the second print issue, which dropped a lot into our laps at super speed. Now it's time for some... Well, the first issue, I should say, dropped a lot in our laps at super speed. Now it's time for some exposition, some moving of the plot forward a little bit with this second issue. Catching up with Lex after Tess was dropped on us, we learned that this really doesn't seem to be a simple hallucination. This is Tess Mercer, uh, this Spectre, this is something more. And it's a thread that's actually really, really compelling. Tess was a character that was really grating to me at first. And over time won me over, and Cassidy Freeman was spectacular from all I've heard. She was the most accessible and appreciative member of the cast of fans. So her character became a fan favorite. And I wondered if they were going to acknowledge her in some way, and what a genius way to do so. We could have easily gotten a crappy resurrection, or just forgotten her altogether, but Miller reintegrates her into the story in a way that is completely unexpected and unexpected, and just kind of mind-blowing, really. The detail that she's still wearing the clothes we last saw her in, complete with the patch of blood from the stab wound, sells this hook, line, and sinker. Well played, sir. And Otis. How can I be mad at Otis? Even if his bumbling is a bit downplayed for a greater, less campy effect, sadly we will not be seeing Otis Berg anytime soon. Jumping to Superman. He doesn't get a lot to do since this chapter serves to flesh out what's going on, but the space scene once again benefits from the digital widescreen format of the individual chapters. I really dig that his shield-shaped belt buckle houses a smartphone of sorts, complete with a holographic computer projection. Very nice touch. Made even better that by the fact that the really, while he's in space, Superman isn't speaking. He can hear Watchtower's transmissions, thanks to the little uh, uh, transmitter in his ear, but to respond he has to type a message back. And the thought-out nature of the story, how we've gone from the blur to Superman is apparent, as Emil explains that he and Superman have been refining the Man of Steel's powers, and then there are the drones. Hazardous Environment Drones, H-E-D Head. For reasons that we will see, this turns out to be a pun, and maybe the only, well, one of two grown-worthy things in this series. And then the reveal of Hank Henshaw. One of Smallville's greatest strengths was his ability to pay homage to the different Superman uh, mythos, and then make it different or fresh. Henshaw in the original comics was an astronaut who eventually became the villainous cyborg Superman and laid waste to Coast City. He was a hardcore bad guy until he became massively watered down and a weepy Green Lantern villain. However, as I said in the recap, just his presence on the final page induced a gasp, as it should. Brian Q. Miller must have known that would be the reaction because it was perfectly timed for the end of that chapter. 
just in time for fans to hit the message boards. Once again, even with a slower exposition-heavy issue, we still got drawn in with this one. So, on to Chapter 5. Another day ends with a glorious sunset, and Lex Luthor looks upon his space shuttle in the quiet dusk light. The quiet really quickly gets disturbed by the voice of Oliver Queen as he arrives with LexCorp security trying to stop him. Lex dismisses the security team, making a crack about how Oliver arrived on foot rather than zipline. Oliver makes a joke about the zipline being in the shop. And all really, Ollie wants to know what Lex's game is, because the military will never let him keep his Guardian platform in the sky, especially since they know what he is capable of. Of course, Lex doesn't know what he's capable of, thanks to the memory loss at the hands of the Neurotoxin. In fact, even though he has been told that he and Oliver knew each other in school, he has no memory of it. Maybe that's a good thing, since Ollie was a bit of a bully to Lex. Oliver mentions Tess, which piques Lex's curiosity between Lois, Clark, and Ollie. She seems to have built quite the array of heroic allies. So, Oliver wonders, doesn't that make her strange apparent suicide that much strange? Er? Hmm. You tell me. Lex shrugs it off, because, let's be honest, she was faced with a failing company, the end of the world, suicide actually made sense. But Ollie knows better and tells Lex that Green Arrow will prove that he's a murderer, and Lex dismissively tells Ollie that he's glad to have lost any memory of him. Oliver leaves, wishing Lex the best of luck on the launch. Elsewhere on the base, Clark Kent interviews Commander Hank Henshaw, who is enjoying a huge amount of food, from pizza to burgers and more. Henshaw explains that this is his pre-flight superstition. Since there are five senses, and taste, touch are the best of the bunch, he wants to enjoy that. He even compares the sensation to flying, or as close to flying as normal people like him are bound to get. The only thing better is the feeling of being in his wife's arm when he arms when he returns. Aww. Henshaw continues telling Clark that the Guardian uh, program has given him a new purpose, and he didn't think he would ever have again, and he gets to keep the world safe at the same time. When Clark says that the world isn't as bad off as Lex would have people believe it is, Henshaw asks if Clark is one of those Superman nuts. He even jokingly tells Clark that he probably has a t-shirt on with the S-shield on it, underneath that suit and tie, which Clark awkwardly denies. But Henshaw makes a point that Superman is reactive and not stopping wars before they start. When Clark counters that Superman doesn't want to impose his will on others, Henshaw states that sometimes the only way to get people to see the light is to force them to look at it. And with that, the interview ends, and Hank heads off to prepare for the launch. While back at Star Labs, Hamilton and Chloe do some further investigating on that ship that came through the Aurora. Using a faint ion trail to track the trajectory, email pinpoints the ship crashed in... Okay, look, do I really need to say it? You and I both know where it's going. Even Chloe rolls her eyes because it crashed in the cornfields of Kansas in a town known as Smallville. To quote Chloe, why would anything crash anywhere else? Speaking of ships, the Guardian shuttle lifts off, heading for the sky, with Lois Lane and Clark Kent covering the story. While Lois has a bad feeling about the Guardian program, Clark almost wonders if it's a good thing. After all, Superman can't be everywhere at right? Not what, at least not at once. But it is Luthor, and that makes the huge assumption that Lex is using this to actually help people. While Clark does know that Luthor is dubious, he also knows that Hank Henshaw is the real deal. And as the boosters fall away from the shuttle and the fuel tank prepares to drop off, the unthinkable happens. Well, unthinkable unless you're reading comic books. 
Um, the Guardian shuttle suddenly erupts into flame, bright enough to light the night sky. Lois and the crowd all gasp in horror as the disaster plays out in front of them. And in a cornfield, a figure standing next to the craft that Emil and Chloe have been tracking, adorned in a spacesuit, hiding their identity, also watches. The chapter closes as this strange visitor looks up to the sky and says to themselves, this looks like a job for Superman. Wow. If, if the explosion on the shuttle wasn't a shock, and it wasn't, then the mysterious person at the end would be. However, despite a strong second half, this chapter suffers from being the second consecutive chapter to be exposition-based. While it may be a byproduct of the digital versus print version, the front half feels like a bunch of talking heads. However, the art supports this, such as the sun-soaked launching platform which sits 50 miles outside of Smallville, gorgeous coloring, and by setting it outside the city, it sits somewhere between Metropolis and Smallville, which positions it perfectly for the reveal in the second half. While the conversation between Lex and Ollie was presentable and interesting, it's ill-timed as we lead up to the shuttle launch. This should be a time that suspense is building and excitement for what is a essentially a huge set piece, and the launch itself really uh, just suffers for that. However, as I'm a stickler for a good detail work, the sun does slowly slide toward the horizon as the conversation moves on, leading us to the nighttime. I know, I'm a nerd. But these things count because they prove that thought and care are going into the work. Additionally, the Henshaw scene is the weakest thing about this chapter. It's way too lengthy, and I know we want to set Henshaw up as this all-American great guy, but as we're going to see, his speech about the senses is really, really heavy-handed and really, really, really on the nose. And let's be honest, let's just say what we're thinking. It reeks of the Harvey Dent-Bruce Wayne relationship in The Dark Knight with Clark thinking that maybe the world will soon have little use for Superman. Very, very long scene, and it beats its point into the ground. And that means the subplot with the ship landing in Smallville takes a back seat, which is fine, but it also means that to keep the story tracking along with the massive amount of conversation, we miss the launch. After the reveal that the ship landed in Smallville, the shuttle is already up in the air. If there was a time for a little heavy-handedness, it is in the launch itself, and I would have rather seen Henshaw and his crew prepping in nervous silence or boarding the craft, and here, this is where Henshaw could have made his delivery on all good things, um, all good, just, you know, Boy Scout stuff. And that also presents a missed opportunity for the artist to rock an awesome Apollo 13-style launch sequence and wow us. It's not always a bad thing to throw the artist a little bit of cool art sequence to make the reader really get into the book, but alas. A lot of conversation, a downplayed launch, with the only major saving grace of the piece being we get another piece of the major, the oh, bigger puzzle thrown at us on the very last page. However, if anyone was craving action at this point, Chapter 6 is sure to please. With the shuttle in peril, this is indeed a job for Superman. So Clark changes into his blue and reds and flies up into the sky with Chloe on Watchtower filling him in with intel. There's a crew of six on board and there is a fire spreading quickly towards a fuel tank, a fire that Superman puts out with his freeze breath. And Superman removes the fuel tank, letting it fall away, ending the immediate danger, or so he thinks. Superman spots a massive radiation leak from a power cell which will kill the crew even if they do make it to orbit. Superman sets up a communication to Commander Henshaw, warning him that the cabin is about to depressurize so Superman can get in and rescue the crew. 
Henshaw tells Superman to rescue his team so he can steer the craft into orbit and stop it from falling to the ground and causing more danger. Just before Superman begins whisking the crew to the ground, Henshaw tells him there is something he needs to know. And after the rescue of the five team members, Superman flies back up to the shuttle where Henshaw's oxygen is at zero. As the heat of the craft begins to envelop Henshaw, Superman rushes to save him and Henshaw blacks out with the last thing he sees being that familiar S. Then it all fades to black. For one nerve-wracking panel, we have nothing but darkness, and Henshaw suddenly awakens to medics frantically trying to save him, his body badly burned. Superman tells the EMTs to take Henshaw to Star Labs for care with his unique condition, and as the medics do so, Lois arrives on the scene. Superman tells Lois that Clark Kent won't be home in time for breakfast because Commander Henshaw's message. The thing that Superman needed to know, it was the fact that the misfire that caused the accident wasn't an accident at all. And the chapter closes with Lex Luthor waiting under the stars as Otis asks him why he is smiling after such a horrible disaster. Lex tells Otis he and Superman are about to have a very interesting conversation. And we close at the halfway point of Guardian with that. After two chapters of exposition and talking heads, this installment was an adrenaline rush. It was a literal page-turner with little dialogue to move the action along a little bit quicker. By page 3, we already have a shirt rip and Superman is in the air by page 4, and from there, it keeps pounding us in the face. And while I don't typically think of Superman as needing assistance, once Chloe's uh, role of Watchtower really gets going, it really does feel more and more justified, and it's a nice element. It's good to have somebody there to tell Superman, and the reader, what is at stake and what needs to be done to save the day. Perez's art continues to astound, with the colors taking it up another level. I'm convinced that digital colors on a digital comic are the sharpest thing you'll see. I'm so, so glad that we don't have the hesitant emo Clark, but instead we have this fleshed out Superman with all the confidence that comes with wearing that costume. It would be very, very easy to take a step back and put Clark back in the mode we saw him on the TV show. Very easy, very, you know, I can see the story potential there, but... Miller has completely denied that urge if it is within him. The rescue of the crew goes quickly as it should, with three panels showing a red blur setting them down. And there is Henshaw, who has been written so heavy-handed up to this point. As a contrast, Superman's frantic race against time is juxtaposed against Henshaw, where he's kind of accepted his fate. Probably before the launch, if he had prior knowledge of what was about to occur... And the fade to black, only to be harshly transitioned to Henshaw getting revived by a defib paddle, rocks the reader, startling them. And then with the action over, we're given this soft landing with the quiet, menacing moment of Lex Luthor revealing his success. And reveling in it, too. Something that is as shocking as the defib scene. All in all, we have a Luthor who is far more vile than Michael Rosenbaum's sympathetic portrayal of the proto-villain on the show. Like Clark, Luthor is very much the villain he needs to be with no qualms about it. Beyond the show, we've taken steps into a def definite Superman tale with no steps back into teen angst or on again, off again in romances. I'm looking at you, Lana. This is every bit the Superman I know, and I'm left looking forward to the next installments. What will Lex and Superman's conversation hold? What will become of Hank Henshaw? Who is the mysterious visitor in the cornfields of Kansas and... What secret is Chloe keeping? All of that and more next week when we pick up with the second half of Guardian. Until then, I am J. David Weider saying keep on fighting the never-ending battle.
Superman Forever Radio is a NatWorld production. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review. The show's episodes and extended show notes are available at supermanforever.com, where episodes premiere every Sunday. Episode postings can also be found at the supermanhomepage.com and at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of quality Superman podcasts for your listening pleasure. And episodes are also available on Stitcher Radio. Email is always welcome. The address is mail at supermanforever.com. You can friend and follow the show at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. And David is also on Twitter with the handle at superdaveweeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties of DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters are copyrighted properties of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Entertainment. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and copyrights remain with the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As always, thank you so much for listening.